So good evening to you all. We're sitting here listening to the the croakers out there. It's uh, wonderful to be here surrounded by the living things that are coming out now that it's spring. The lizards and the all the birds and the deer that seem to be so unafraid of us. Watchful, but they seem to know that they're safe in this place. And I hope that you feel the same way also. A couple of nights ago, Oren gave a talk on the third foundation of mindfulness. And he gave a a nice overview of what it was and how it fit into the Buddha's schema of establishing mindfulness by turning the mind and uh, towards particular fields of human activity. And the first of these, of course, is mindfulness of the body, which is what we do when we're doing breath meditation or walking meditation or feeling the sensations that are in the body. And the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. And it was pointed out that when we say mindfulness of feelings, we're actually talking about mindfulness of feeling tone, whether something is experienced as pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, more of a neutral kind of way. But this third foundation of mindfulness is the place where we start to touch into the cultivation of mindful awareness in relationship to uh, the mind itself, including things like thoughts and emotions and memories and intentions and all the rest of it. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's two basic groupings of instructions, and I'm going to talk about one of them tonight, which seems to be the most on point for working uh, in this area of thought and emotion. And I want to read you this instruction again, and perhaps more than once in this talk, because there's some very interesting things in it if you listen carefully to what's actually being called for. So the Buddha said, Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. So basically what we're being told is know in real time whether greed, aversion, or delusion is present or absent in the mind. And this is calling for a kind of metacognition, M-E-T-A, cognition that directly inquires into whether suffering or the causes of suffering are presently in operation. The 
suffering states that we experience are all offshoots of greed, aversion, and delusion. So if we're tracking whether greed, aversion, and delusion are present in the mind or not, we're we're basically tracking whether the expressions of suffering are operative or not. That's a good thing to know. So, notice the language that he uses. We're not being asked to notice whether or not we're an angry person and we're not being asked to know or investigate where the anger came from. We're just being asked to know whether X, Y, and Z are the case right now. Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. You'll know, notice that in that language there's nothing in there about my mind or my, my anger or my contraction. There's no ownership language in it. So in a certain sense, you can see, it's almost like we're being asked for a weather report. You know, is it raining now? Is it snowing now? Is the sun out? Is the angry mind present? Or isn't it? And you can see there's a kind of -of matter-of-factness with this. It's true that we're not cultivating anger, we're not cultivating contraction, we're not cultivating lust. That's very true. The Buddhist teachings have clear discernments about what's skillful and what isn't skillful. But in our taking the seat of knowing our immediate experience, we're encouraged not to set them apart We're encouraged to attend to them with the same willingness and in the same kind of way, whether what we're knowing is skillful or unskillful, whether it's an expression of greed, aversion, and delusion, or whether it's the expression of the skillful states. So, for our sake in establishing mindfulness, whether some, there's anger or whether there isn't anger is equally acceptable. It's an equally good answer. <laughs> right? You just want it to be the honest answer. So this whole thing is a coaching to an honest answer about what's there. And you can see that an honest answer, perhaps, is much more possible when we don't take ownership of the experience. So the point isn't which one is there, it's that you're connected enough to what's experienced to be able to say. That's the point. 
So you're mindful in respect to this axis of whether there's anger or there's no anger. So there's no story attached to this report about the anger or the lust or the lack thereof. So we're just, we just answer the question, what's there? When I was working on this talk, I had um, some memories come back about the very first retreat that I ever did. And um, at the time I was, I was working in a, a shelter for uh, uh, survivors of domestic violence and their children. So that's what I was doing for work. So this was not a low-stress environment. (laughs) There was anger in the mind. There certainly was. Um, And fear and a a number of other things. And one of my coworkers said to me one day, there's this guy that's coming to town and and he's going to do this meditation retreat and it's going to be four days long over the holiday weekend and I've seen him before and he's really good. We should go. We should go. This will be fun. We should go. (laughs) So I needed a little stress reduction. (laughs) So my friend Diane talked me into into going along with her. So (laughs) we're there. And the first thing I thought is, you know, this could be really good because I, I need relaxation and I, you know, it would be nice to have some lovely states and some uplifting things. And But I was a little surprised when we got the initial meditation instructions and the initial meditation instructions were along the line of you know, attend to the breath, just receive the breath as it is, know it. Oh, breathing, of course. Breathing, of course. Other things, the, the, the co-teacher was, had a kind of sing-songy voice. Other things may arise to be known. <laughs> Anger, of course. I thought, oh, no, (laughs) No, not here, too. Anger, of course. I thought, is that right? You know, I thought this was supposed to be a meditation retreat. I thought you were supposed to be, you know, getting the non-anger thing. That was the point of it. But in retrospect, the way the instructions were given were really very skillful. Because the way they gave the instructions, anything that they named that you could experience had this tagline with it of, of course. And it was added to everything. Oh, happiness, of course. Oh, rage, of course. Oh, (laughs) sadness, of course. And it was all notated the same kind of way. And in some kind of basic way, my system took it in as being, I guess it's of course. <laughs> I guess that's what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to like notice what it is and acknowledge what it is and just kind of of course it. 
So it seemed, you know, they were telling me it's okay for things to be the way they are, you know, which seemed weird, but it was clear that's what was being said, that it was all equally acceptable, it was all okay the way that it was. And of course, this is a very counterintuitive thing for us because it goes against a lot of our assumptions and our preferences because we really would prefer to have some things rather than others, right? Or is it just me? (laughs) I don't think so. There's some things that we want. There's some things that we don't want. There's some things that we don't find even interesting enough to want to experience at all. Um, And you can see what happens, given that this is true, it's almost like our inner world or our inner mind is like a game of prison dodgeball. You remember that game? They've probably banned it in schools now as being too rough for the children. But I, you know, I, I lived in a different era, and I have to say I was a zealous participant in it. That was kind of the highlight of recess. But, you know, the, the idea was, you know, there were some kids that were in the middle that were in prison, and then there were these, you know, other two lines of kids that were on the outside of the prison, and they would throw a ball at you. And if you caught the ball... That was great. And they had to go into the prison, and you got out. But if they hit you with the ball and you didn't catch it, I guess you were still in the prison. <laughs> the prison, you were just sore. But, uh, but then there, there was this other thing that happened. What, you know, they would throw somebody, because there's two, more than one ball going on at a time, there's two lines of people. Sometimes you would just get <laughs> completely blindsided, right? Like hit by the ball out of nowhere. So there you have it, you know, catching the ball and wanting to hold the ball so you get something, greed, <laughs> getting nailed by the ball and being angry and in reaction, and getting punitive, hatred, right? <laughs> getting nailed by the ball you didn't even see coming, delusion, <laughs> right? And this, this is the inner world, isn't it? This is our inner world. This is how our mind treats things based on their Vedana, largely on our preference. So, you know, some things we want to catch and hold on to, some things we want to avoid, some things we don't even see or want to see in particular. So we don't give things equal valence. And a lot of the challenge of establishing mindfulness is learning how to do it. Learning how to treat everything with equal dignity of attention, of course, whether it's preferred or not. So with the meditation instructions that were given, we're actually asked to not let our preferences confuse our recognition of what's actually present. Not let our preferences confuse our recognition of what's actually present. So we're going for plainly and continually acknowledging what's happening now. What's happening now. 
what's right on top of the pile. So as this pertains to the third foundation of mindfulness, which as I said, uh, is the zone where there are mental arisings, like thoughts and emotions and memories and intentions and perceptions, the practice is the same as the practice with the other sense doors. So that means that memories, thoughts, perceptions, emotions are recognized in real time as they're happening, as they arise and uh, become the predominant experience. So they're actually seen as events and are worked with in the same matter-of-fact way as sensations like a body sensation or a sound is worked with. They arise, they manifest, they pass away. And then something else arises, manifests, and passes away. And all experiences are part of this flow of impermanent objects being known in and as the mind stream. And this includes thoughts and emotions and memories and everything else. So that's a nice theory, huh? So we have to acknowledge that um, there's a lot of suffering that occurs through the mind door. Just as there can be physical suffering, there can be mental suffering as well. Difficult and unwanted states can arise that are manifestations of greed or aversion or delusion. So not only are these unpleasant in and of themselves and painful, but they're often difficult to see mindfully. And this zone is a place where our Identity is created where the personal narrative arises uh, intertwined with um, suffering and identification. So I'll tell you a story about this uh, retreat I uh, taught over the New Year's a few years ago. And I was asked by some uh, uh, Dharma friends who... uh, I'd worked with on the long retreat if I would help them do a retreat that was aimed at young people. And they were going to be like, I want to say the age 14 to maybe 18, but most of them were kind of the middle of the range, like 15, 16 in there. So I thought, wow, you want me to do that? (laughs) I thought, okay, I'll do it. I'm up for it. I'll do the adventure. And you know, people that age, that's really where the height of emotional storming is. At least until you get to middle age. (laughs) But it was really interesting because everything they felt was so intense. Their emotions were intense, their views were intense, their thoughts were intense, their relationships with each other were intense, their relationships and struggles with their parents were intense, their views of the world were intense, it was all very... And I thought, okay, so uh, 
Matthew, Daniel, and I, uh, another Dharma friend, were, were giving meditation instructions. And then we'd have, drop in some mini Dharma talk kind of things. And I, I thought to myself, well, you know, what, would, what could I drop in here that might ripen at some point into some, something that could be really useful? And I decided that I would suggest to them that perhaps they weren't their thoughts. And I said, you know, do you think you're the same thing as your thoughts? And they looked at me blankly. And I said, well, what about your thoughts? Have you ever noticed they're like, inconsistent. (laughs) I said, you know, like here's an example. Say you come home from school and, you know, you've been at school and you've been thinking all day about how you have to get your grades up and how your parents are really pissed off at you and how you promised your mom that you're going to do your homework first thing. So you in the morning when you got up and you said, okay, I'm going to do my best at school today. When I come home, I'm going to do my homework right away so my mother won't be mad at me. So you're going to do your homework. You're going to do your homework. And then when you get home, you know, there's that hour there, two hours where you could do your homework, but then you think, you know, I tried really hard at school all day. I think I'll smoke <laughs> a little bit of stuff, just to relax. <laughs> just to take the edge off. Huh? I said, you ever have anything like that happen? <laughs> or like, you know, you ever have that experience where, you, like, you know, I gotta cut down the sweets. It's kind of getting hard to fit into the size fours. <laughs> so I'm gonna lay off the chocolate. But then, you know, you're at a birthday party and there's chocolate cake. And you say to yourself, well, you know, it's a party. I might as well have some cake because you deserve it. So you have some cake. (laughs) And then later that night, when you're laying out your school clothes for the next day and you realize you can't wear that pair of pants, you go, why did I do that? I was so stupid. Why did I do that? I said, you know, thoughts. You would think like if there's like, you know, They would all be coming out of like the same (laughs) understanding, the same kind of same kind of place that it all intersects. So maybe you're really not your thoughts, maybe maybe they're not always reliable. So if they're not always reliable, then how do you discern among them? How do you know which ones are true? Which ones are reliable? 
But you see the thoughts are often the seed of identification. And I can remember when I had the experience of a long time ago when somebody was asking me about some emotion or something I was I was feeling or how I interpreted some what my experience was of something. This is somebody who was a psychotherapist. And I started telling them about it. And they referenced something about, well, I can see that's a very powerful part of your story. And I went, what do you mean my story? I didn't say it quite like that, but what do you mean my story? I'm telling you what happened. (laughs) What do you mean my story? I know what happened. I know that's the way it is. So that suggestion that maybe there would be another way to experience things or a different channel with which to know that experience or to perceive and hold the end result of that story, everything that had gone before, that was really a new idea for me. So, you know, just as we can identify with the body or with various body sensations, we often identify with our thoughts and our emotions as belonging to a self or being a self or being what we are no matter how wildly consistent these are, one from another. In fact, it's difficult to see it any other way. But if you take the teachings of the Buddha as a point of serious investigation, you might remember that when he's talking about the five aggregates, the five aggregates subject to clinging, interesting tagline, subject to clinging, meaning they could be something that you kind of... That we shouldn't consider these arising and passing away things to be me or mine or what I am. So he suggests we understand thoughts and emotion as real-time events and processes and not attach an identity view to these or to plaster a self-sense on them or to try to own them. Wow, that's a really different way to look at it. Which means don't look at these events and processes as belonging to you or being a fixed self which you control or you should be able to control. Rather, we should understand that they're conditioned by more than our will and preference and they're not actually under our direction. Have you noticed that? Have you said to yourself, I'm not going to have that thought anymore? Or I'm never going to have that emotion anymore? Or I felt this enough and I don't, I don't want it to come back? Or maybe you're even practicing to t- try to make sure something doesn't come back that you find acceptable, unacceptable as an arising experience. So that doesn't work so well. So here's another version of what we can do, given that we can't control it, which is, it's possible to use the mind to know the workings of the heart and mind, 
and to free the mind through this clear seeing and the understanding that arises from it. So it's actually possible to use our capacities of mind to know the workings of the heart and mind and free this mind through clear seeing and understanding. Which is another way of saying there are resources within the mind stream which are available to us if we learn how to relate to them and learn how to employ them. So our mirror-like capacity, which you could say is mindfulness, when skillfully oriented towards our experience, and by skillful I mean held within the context of the Buddha's teachings, we can learn to see how suffering is created and thus how it can be released. And this is really the point of our meditation practice. If you've been wondering what the point actually is. Because <laughs> it's not obvious at first. Or even for a while. But the point of the practice is to encourage continual mindfulness of our present tense experience. Allowing the body-mind system to become transparent to its own working and thus purified from the obscurations which are and suffering and which cause suffering. So the mind is turned around towards its own functioning, knowing the, its experiences as it arises within the various sense doors, including this sense door of the mind itself. So let me talk about something that um, is a conversation that springs out of what I just said about how mindfulness works with the arisings at the mind door, the third foundation. So I want to talk a little bit about the difference between mindfulness meditation and psychotherapy. So I was just saying that we learn how to use the mind to understand its own workings. That's an interesting way to put it. And it sounds a little bit like psychotherapy, right? Because there's an exploration in the mind, by the mind, that's part of psychotherapy. So let me just ask the group if people feel comfortable responding to this. How many people here have done psychotherapy, some psychotherapy? Okay. And I'll add that uh, I would say almost all the Dharma teachers that I know, except perhaps for the monastics, have done some to a, a good amount to a lot of psychotherapy. Maybe not enough. <laughs> Now, but I want to draw the distinctions, some distinctions here, because while there's some overlaps between mindfulness meditation and Western uh, therapy, there's some very fundamental differences about goals, views, and practice. So, please forgive me, especially if you are a psychotherapist, from the gross generalizations that I'm now going to make. 
because I can't I can't say this in a very nuanced way. There there would be too many footnotes, but uh, so I'll just put it out there in kind of an overly simplified form. But here's how I understand mindfulness meditation. First, there's a present tense orientation. So the question asked is, what is present? Which is different from, where did it come from? The second thing is, investigation is of the presently arising experience. What's right there now? So you don't generally dig under or uh, into things to find out the why about its present presence, right? You're not doing an archaeology about why this particular thing is there. Mindfulness meditation is also matter of fact. It's what is present is what is attended to. So things aren't usually interpreted or sourced to a particular personal history or narrative. Now this is not to say that that sourcing or that narrative might not spontaneously arise as part of that experience, right? Because sometimes it does. Sometimes you'll have a thought or you'll have a memory or uh, a body sensation come up and you go, oh yeah, I remember that. That first happened when, you know, this thing happened in my family, right? It just like comes up. But you're not trying to like to figure out the source. It's just there. With mindfulness meditation, thoughts and emotions, as well as everything else, are related to, to as events as they happen. It's an event. Hearing, I-N-G. Seeing, I-N-G. Thinking, I-N-G. The goal of this practice is the end of the generic suffering created by delusion manifesting as craving, right? It's the end of the prison dodgeball mind. So there's a kind of one-size-fits-all-ness to this. Let go of craving to end suffering. It doesn't matter what the craving is in relationship to. Right? It doesn't matter if it's craving for a particular self-view, if it's craving for a particular sensory experience, if it's craving for uh, a particular uh, recognition from others, if it's a craving for the knee pain to stop, if it's a cra- craving not to be sleepy, it doesn't matter. It's the craving that is released and let go of, generically. So here's a description of the task of attending at the mind door from the Satipatthana Sutta. And, and listen carefully to the language because the Buddha tells you how to attend. So he says, in this way, in regard to the mind, the mind door, one abides contemplating, meaning attending to, the mind internally, own experience, externally, what is perceived of others' experience, internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising, manifesting, things coming into manifestation, of passing away, going out of existence, of both arising and passing away in regard to the mind. 
mindfulness that there is a mind, it's a parallel phrasing to there is a body, that's sometimes used to establish mindfulness of the body. There is a mind, not my mind. There is a mind, is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge, meaning unelaborated, um, and continuous mindfulness, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So there's a very clear pointing that things at the mind door are to be known in the same way that you would know sensations, with that same understanding of the, the view and the perspective that's being cultivated in relationship to uh, objects at the mind, of the mind. So that's about mindfulness meditation. Now about psychotherapy. This is my layperson's drawing of distinctions. The goal is the relief slash healing of personal specific suffering that is related to me. Right? You're not trying to... uh, personal, specific suffering that's related to me. Meaning is sought in understanding the unique personal causes of our conditioned patterns of suffering. We've all got our conditioning. We've all had different conditions. Things that we've experienced in the past, environments that we've lived in, events that have happened, even Uh, genetic heritage, right? But we're trying to understand what the meaning is of this. We look to the past for insight and explanation of why we are as we are. So we'll take the anger, anger thing. Why am I prone to anger? You know, where did I learn it? How did I see it? What function did it? serve me when I was young, when I could get angry, what did it do for me, right? The story or the personal narrative is a primary place of exploration. And what happened in our life before now? What was my, what was the family like? What was my prime uh, caretaker person like? Was that being loving? Were they not loving? Were they you know, was the community in which I lived safe? Was it not safe? Was I discriminated against? Or was I privileged? Right? You want to, we go into that kind of stuff. The narrative, what happened before, how does it tie into or cause the present emotions or thought or beliefs or suffering? So you can see that our personal experience in working psychotherapeutically is reviewed and analyzed and reworked and revised and reframed. So we're trying to figure it out and understand it in order to to release it, or at least to release our reactivity to it. But can you see those are kind of like two different tracks. You can say that there's mindfulness present in both of those ways of working with the mind. I mean, you can't, if you have a psychotherapist who has no mindfulness and doesn't encourage you to some uh, type of mindfulness as you're working with them, it's not going to work. 
right? And there are whole schools of psychotherapy like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that use mindfulness. And there are systems of working directly with the body in situations where uh, there's trauma, like uh, somatic experiencing, for instance, that use mindfulness of the body, establishment of mindfulness of the body, as a way to uh, encourage um, the nervous system to let go of and unbind held suffering patterns of fight or flight or disconnection. So there needs to be mindfulness there when you're learning to do that, when somebody's teaching you how to do that, how to work in that kind of way. So they're not two completely different worlds. You can see that <clears throat> mindfulness is present in both of them, but the task that it's being asked to do is really quite different. And it's an important distinction to draw because sometimes we actually come on retreat and our agenda when we come into retreat or we come into meditation practice is a lot more like that second description that I gave of psychotherapy. Seeking to uh, ameliorate or to get rid of a particular uh, form of personal suffering where identification is closely bound up. And if, if we don't recognize that we're basically trying to turn the whole process in service of that agenda, it's going to be very confusing and difficult meditation practice. Because you've got two different sets of instructions going on in your head. What are you trying to do? Recognize what you're experiencing and open to it in a matter-of-fact, wise, balanced, loving way? Or recognize the arising of something that you've decided that you need to get rid of because it's causing you suffering in your day-to-day life and then start on some strategy of trying to deal with it right then in a way that makes it go away or helps you figure it out or reframes it for you so when you go home it won't be there. Now does this sound familiar? So I'm going to now go through a few scenarios about illustrating the differences between holding an experience in mindfulness meditation and relating to it like you might if you were seeking psychological insight. All right. And first to say, these are <clears throat> imaginary scenarios, right? So I didn't take these off my notes about any of you. Uh, this, none of these have come up in the teacher room, okay? So th- these are composites, right? Well, one of them is mine, but <clears throat> I won't tell you so. <clears throat> so scenario number one. So you're waiting in the breakfast line here and you're hungry. And your yogi job takes a good amount of time right after breakfast, so you have to kind of move it along. And you're behind the line of a guy who is what we call in, in uh, Polly a fruit surgeon. 
You know what a fruit surgeon is? Okay. <laughs> All right. So the guy goes to the bowl and he starts with the apple. You know. Little uniform pieces, right? right? And then he goes to the orange. Slowly and mindfully. Goes to the orange. Slowly. Slowly. And then as you're starting to feel irritation and some annoyance and some worry about getting to your yogi job, he reaches for the banana. (laughs) Okay? This is serious fruit surgery, so you have to attend to it carefully. All right, so you're standing there and, and you notice that you're angry. You're in the I'm angry mode. You're not in the anger has arisen mode. You're angry. So you're standing there and you're thinking, that guy is, man, he is out of it. Doesn't he realize there's all these people waiting? You know, like move it along, move it along, move it along. And you start to think, what is it about certain kinds of people that they don't realize they're holding up a line. And then you go, well, I guess this guy has never had to wait in a line. Not like I have. (laughs) You know, I've never been one of those kinds of people that gets let in nightclubs. I'm always at the back of the bus, right? And you know, this guy kind of reminds me of my brother. Because when dad left and mom went back to work, he was supposed to take care of us at dinner. And he would always take whatever he wanted right off the top. And he didn't care that we had to wait until he was done. And then he left us all the dishes. Can you see what just happened with that? the arising of the narrative of the self. Okay, so let's go through the same kind of thing if mindfulness were established to the extent (laughs) necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So you're standing in line. The same thing is happening. You're standing there. Annoyance arises in the mind you notice it's unpleasant. You feel it in the body. You track it in the body. Then, then you notice it's actually become anger. So then you note it as anger. Then you recognize the, the arising of impatience. You notice the arising of the thought, what is the matter with this kind of guy? There's... Why are there always blah, blah, blah? You recognize that as aversion or not liking. You see him reach for the banana. 
you see it at, you see it recognize you're seeing you see the hand go out and get the banana you see the impatience arise in you you watch the hand come back with the banana right do you see the difference one one goes off veers off into the papancha mind including a reference and interpretation of what this person is like and what those kinds of people are like and you know why right it goes in the, that direction and then maybe later as you're doing your yogi job you'd be thinking about oh why do i still let myself get triggered by that kind of thing Okay, scenario number two. This is what I'll call Sunday afternoon feeling. So you're you're walking around doing your practice on Sunday. Oh, that's today, right? Okay, Sunday. And all of a sudden, you you become aware that there's this kind of uncomfortable, unpleasant overall body sensation. And just kind of the, this low-grade aversion to everything and a lack of enjoyment to what's present. And as you're knowing this, your mind goes, Oh, I remember this feeling. This is how I used to feel on <clears throat> Sunday afternoon when my parents would make me go to church and then I'd have to get dressed up to go to church. And you'd have to put on your Sunday clothes. And you would have to put on those Sunday shoes. And then when you were all dressed up, they would take you over to visit the elderly aunts. And then you would have to sit there in the parlor <coughs> with nothing to do while the parents talked with the elderly aunts while you really wanted to go home and play baseball in your jeans. And like, what was going on in, in our family anyway that they, they felt like they had to go over there every Sunday to <clears throat> go see the ants? And <clears throat> God, it seemed like an unnecessary uh, amount of attention. They could have at least taken us home and we were old enough we could have played. What was that? They were like making us be there. They didn't seem to have much sensitivity to, to our needs to discharge energy. And I wonder if this is the reason why (laughs) in relationship to my nieces and nephews, I kind of expect them to be, you know, around a lot more than they actually are. And maybe it's because I thought about my, saw my parents and how they were with their elders and like they guilt trip me into, into it. And now I'm trying to guilt trip them into it. And God, that's so sick, you know. All right. Or another version of Sunday afternoon feeling is you're there. You notice this body sensation, this general overall body sensation. It just feels kind of unpleasant. And there's some unease in the mind and a sense of lack of contentment. And you realize, oh, this is sensation and it's kind of unpleasant. 
And there's a not liking of this experience. Oh, a memory arises. I I remember when I felt this. Remembering, remembering. The memory continues to unfold. Oh, remembering, remembering. Unpleasant, unpleasant. The memory is primarily visual now. Seeing, seeing. Right? So you're carrying the mindfulness in to what might be a similar kind of unfolding, at least in the early stages. But the mind is relating to it in a different way. It's got mindfulness intact as it opens. So there's more that we could do with these scenarios. But I hope at least those two give you some illustration of what's being talked about in terms of the the difference in the way the mind can work with things and some clarity about which way we're actually cultivating here. And again, not to say that the other doesn't have value. You know, but both of these methods have their own proper use and they're not, although they're not completely separate, they're not the same thing. So, you know, the, a knife and a screwdriver have their similarities, but they're really not interchangeable. Except in an emergency, you know, you might be able to make do with it. But this goes to use the right tool for the job. So, you know, sometimes people come on retreats with a specific agenda. They're going to get rid of some specific, very personal dukkha, something that they're never going to feel again, or they're going to get to the bottom of the story, or they're going to fix it once and for all. And in approaching it that kind of way, there's a kind of, there's a kind of wisdom in wanting not to suffer. So let's appreciate that piece because it's really important that there is a wisdom in not wanting to suffer. The less skillful part of that is thinking that you're going to be able to directly excise things from your mind stream when they're there because of causes and conditions that you don't directly control. So what's your second choice? The second choice, which is the realistic one, is to actually learn how to work with the unfolding of things as it arises in the mind stream by being able to sustain mindfulness and to leave the psychotherapeutic working with these issues to a psychotherapeutic uh, setting. As I said before, it's not that psychological insight doesn't arise in retreat. Because it certainly does. But an interesting thing about it is it tends to arise in its uh, most useful and strongest form when you're not looking for it. Have you noticed that? Because it tends to arise when the mind is quiet and it's attending to whatever is before it, which is a way of saying mindfulness is established. So the mind is open and balanced and in some kind of state of okayness, then the psychological insight kind of sneaks in through the back door because the mind is receptive, but not looking for anything in particular. So another thing to say, 
is that mindfulness is beneficial for just about everything. It's, as I said earlier, it's a huge support for, for psychotherapy. It's a huge support for stress reduction. It's a huge support for your performance at work. It's a huge support for your relationship with other people. And mindfulness meditation alone, as a standalone thing, is not necessarily the best tool for everything. Right? Sometimes people have the idea that mindfulness meditation is... Uh, a panacea, some kind of medicine that will cure every specific thing in the best possible way, and that's just not the case. So there's a reason when I said earlier that almost almost all Dharma teachers that I know who have done some psychotherapy is because sometimes what people found when they were working with practice, even people who had worked in practice for years and years and years, that there was specific themes or specific types of suffering where the mind was really bound up and where the mindfulness didn't seem to be able to really sustain itself in relationship to that particular form of dukkha, right? That particular place, it it couldn't quite get all the way in there. And so then the wise decision was taken, okay, there needs to be some... uh, uh, additional support, some additional tools, some additional techniques um, explored to actually work here with this particular thing. You know, sometimes a skilled therapist can be really helpful. So, you know, this is really true when the mind has a lot of reactivity in relationship to particular themes, right? It doesn't mean that mindfulness doesn't work. Mindfulness does work. And other things also work in their own way that can supplement this. So any of you who've had the experience of doing these retreats, getting a basic grounding in mindfulness and understanding and how to keep your seat, how to work with your mind, some of these basic practice principles, this is a huge asset for you when you go into further explorations in a different setting. Right? Because you're going to be walking in the door with a whole set of <laughs> capacities to be present, to actually notice your experience, to be able to tolerate experience, to be willing to recognize experience that most people who go into psychotherapeutic settings don't have. So this is a case where we don't want to have an either-or mind, right? Both and. A variety of skillful means, a, a variety of useful tools. And uh, the wisdom and the compassion directed towards ourselves to, to be willing to uh, use what is appropriate dependent on the totality of the circumstances. So that's uh, probably enough about this for tonight, except to add, in your meetings with teachers, part of what your teachers are trying to do is to keep you mostly in the practice instructions. Have you noticed that? Mm -hmm. 
some of us more than others. So if you launch into like a, a long narrative about where it came from and if the teacher goes, okay, so what was that? A thought? <laughs> oh, that sounds like a memory. What's that feel like in your body? What was the Vedana? What was the emotional uh, the feeling tone of that? What they're doing is they're saying, okay, we, we can't solve it like that. We can't really address it like that. That's like the, you know, the, the, the fruit sur- uh, surgeon uh, that went to uh, what was going on at home when mom had to work after dad left. Let's bring it in. Let's bring it in. Let's bring it into the center. Let's bring it into present tense again. Let's bring it into right now. Let's keep it in what's happening now. What's happening now? What's the immediate experience now? How do you know that experience? Where is that in your body? Where is that in your mind? Is that pleasant or unpleasant? What is the attitude of mind that is present in relationship to that experience right now? Right? So this is our uh, role to have integrity uh, as teachers to work with you in this kind of way. It's not that we're not interested in the rest. But this is a rare and precious opportunity for you to actually uh, get a strong grounding in this very fundamental and universal tool. And part of our role as teachers also might be at some point to suggest to you, you know, the way this comes up for you repeatedly in this particular kind of way, let's chip at at it away at it this way. Let's work with it in this kind of way. And later you might want to consider to do this in addition. Right? Because we see a lot of minds. Right? Okay. I'm sure there'll be... If you have any questions about this talk, Ask the other teachers. <laughs> All right, so let's just uh, sit for a minute. Mary Grace, especially. May the merit of our practice, this teaching and hearing of the Dhamma, be for our benefit and well-being and for our own liberation and that of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.